1: including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious. Misfit. Sean. Lee. David. Torso and Pinches. Matt. Hangman Strain. Sir Rancid Cheese. Shelby. Andrew. Axios. Richard. Hartman. Skipper. The Sextant. Brian. Cap'n Crunch. Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Kilmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, the Navigator, Vasillos, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spade. I'd also like to welcome our newest patrons Alex, Alan, Bill, Bob, Brendan, Brian, Buck, Cabe, Chad, Clayton, Conquervos, Connor, CT2391, Deborah, Decker, DJ Odom, Don. Drew, Ed and Katie, M. Gregory, Ignacio, Jacob, Jeller, John, Kep, Christina, Mark, Matthew, Michael, Oh How Very Blue, Patrick, Frogbutt Mama, Rich, Sam, Sasha, Scott, Sitinium Thanduriel, Thomas, Timothy, Tom, Tony, Trevor, Veretha, and yours sincerely. I'd also like to welcome our new quartermasters, Evan, Brandon, The Gecko, Nathan, and Kevin, as well as our newest Commodores, John, Ghost750X, Keelhaul Chris, Vanderwood, Sean and the Snarling Sea Dog. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes of one of the men on board HMS Roebuck in the early spring of 1699. Your captain, William Dampier, is most famous for writing a book about the time he spent sailing with pirates. And that man has got command of a very fine frigate. 26 guns, about 300 tons, and around 50 men. A ship that would be, you know, hypothetically, an amazing pirate ship. The one member of the crew who most vocally opposed Captain Dampier, Lieutenant Fisher, the man who repeatedly accused Dampier of planning to run off with the king's ship, well, Fisher was gone. Dampier beat him, fairly viciously, had him imprisoned, and then saw him shipped off to London. And now, here you are, in beautiful Brazil, Bahia. You're enjoying the sun and the drinks and all the women you can afford, but you gotta be wondering, what was the captain's real plan? Does he, in fact, intend to take the ship and run? to, you know, turn pirate, to declare war against all mankind. I mean, from here in Brazil, he's got options. He could easily sail north and rove the West Indies at his leisure, or, as he says he plans, he could sail east, round the Cape of Africa, and make for, well, who knows? I mean, Libertalia is right there, right? As far as you, or anyone else in the world, know, that's where Henry Every is holed up as well as all his men, and a bunch of other pirates. It's supposed to be a pirate haven filled with rum punch and gorgeous island girls, and after all, Captain Dampier was on the Spanish expedition with Henry Every. Who's to say he's not going to take the ship and you and meet up with some of his old pals? And that means you've got a decision to make. Do you go with him, or oppose him? Do you mutiny against the Navy officers? Make yourself an outlaw, forever exiled from your home and your family and all that you know. For some of the men, that would have been a hard pill to swallow, but for others, going back to England to endure a life of poverty and bad weather, or to live a life free, tan, drunk, and rich. This is Episode 311, Beautiful Disaster. I do not doubt that these conversations took place in some of the rum sinks of Bahia. Some of the men had to be thinking, yeah, let's do it. Others had to be preparing to defend the ship and themselves. But none of that was going to come to pass. William Dampier was not planning to steal the king's ship. He was planning to do exactly what he said he planned to do. During his weeks in Brazil, Dampier took long hikes to observe the wildlife and do precisely what his king and the Lord High Admiral had ordered him to do. He took notes. And Dampier did something pretty interesting during his time in Brazil. He noticed a couple of slightly different species of birds. You know, they had slightly different length legs and slightly different plumage, but were clearly very closely related. So, Dampier established the scientific classification of a subspecies. That is, uh, an animal that has slightly different traits from another animal, but the two are able to interbreed and maybe even create more subspecies. This is a classification that's changed quite a bit, but is still used in the modern day. But at one point, a Brazilian merchant in Bahia warned William Dampier that his Incessant inquisitiveness was raising eyebrows in town, the eyebrows of the Inquisition. Dampier was warned to expect them, so he retreated to his ship where he decided it was prudent to stay. And to give Lieutenant Fisher a little bit of credit, he does appear to have been correct in one thing. Three pirates who had formerly been Henry Every's men were indeed there in Bahia. Those three men is actually how we know that a contingent of pirates made their way to Brazil after the fancy put in at Nassau. Now, Dampier says that he would have arrested them, but he was worried about bringing them on board his ship. He was worried about the effect that they might have on his small and isolated English crew. Later on, he would deny any suggestion of having cavorted with pirates, but, you know, you have to choose who to believe there. He confirmed the presence of these pirates in a letter he wrote to the Admiralty. It was the letter that detailed the confrontation between himself and Lieutenant Fisher, and that gave an update on the voyage. He said that with this troublemaker out of the way, spirits on board were up. The health of the men seemed to be good, and they were preparing to sail for Africa and beyond. William Dampier would go on to write a whole book about this trip, A Voyage to New Holland, and I could easily spend several episodes talking about it, but that would take us even further from the story of piracy than we already are. There's not going to be any real pirate activity here. So to that end, I want to pick up the pace a bit. For example, I'm not going to spend much time talking about the host of scientific discoveries that William Dampier made on this voyage. Just remember that everywhere he goes, every stop they make, Dampier is filling up his journals, he's finding new species, documenting wind patterns, coastlines, and we're not going to talk about all of that. When Roebuck finally did leave Brazil, they made for Africa, rounded the Cape, and began their journey across the Indian Ocean. And it was a relatively uneventful voyage. It doesn't appear that they met any pirates at Madagascar. Now, William Dampier was well aware that the Dutch had discovered Australia a few decades back. And, of course, when we say the word discover, we do so with significant air quotes because they didn't discover it. There were people living there already, but they were the first Europeans to step foot on Australia. Back in 1642, on his first major voyage, Abel Tasman somehow made a full circuit around Australia without ever managing to touch down on Australia, at least not on the mainland. He did, though, discover New Zealand, which is why New Zealand is called New Zealand. Old Zealand was a Dutch province. Tasman's only landfall on Australia was on an island just off the coast of the mainland. An island that, I'm actually unclear if he named it or if it was named in his honor, Tasmania. But in his second major voyage, Tasman landed on the west coast of mainland Australia in 1643. And in his documentation and letters home, Tasman did use words like Terra Australis Incognita and even Australia, but he dubbed the island New Holland. It was from that journey that he made a map, which Dampier now had a copy of. Dampier was also well aware, though, that the Dutch had sent an expedition much more recently, Just a couple of years back, in 1697, another Dutch vessel explored the shores of Western Australia. Their first landfall was at a river mouth that was filled with swans, so they dubbed it the Swan River, and that is today the site of modern-day Perth. However, when HMS Roebuck arrived at the coast of Australia on the 1st of August, 1699, Dampier apparently spotted the Swan River, but decided not to stop there. A couple of days later, Roebuck arrived at what appeared to be a promising bay. They landed at a spit of land, which was, I'm pretty sure, the very first Australian land ever explored by Europeans. Today, the site that Dampier made landfall is called Dirk Hartog Island, after... Dirk Hartog, the Dutch explorer who landed there back in 1616. The men of the Roebuck spent about a week hunting for fresh water and cutting what little timber they could find. But there was no water to be found. Still, they caught some sea turtles and quite a few sharks. Really, mostly just sharks. You know, kind of a lot of sharks, actually. There seemed to be an abundance of them in the water. Today, the bay in which they were fishing is known as Shark Bay. But, while the men were exploring for water, William Dampier found a pewter plate left behind by Dirk Hartog, commemorating his visit some 83 years ago. Now, I'm not super clear on the etiquette, but Dampier actually took Dirk Hartog's pewter plate. To me, that seems a bit rude, but Dampier did leave another plate, documenting both Hartog's arrival back in 1616 and his own here in 1699. Soon enough, now that the men had full bellies and a few days' rest, Dampier and the Roebuck set out once again. Their water supplies were getting low, but they weren't going thirsty yet. Roebuck snaked her way through a a maze of reefs and shoals, which turned out to be a pretty dangerous bit of sailing, but mostly they were just looking for any land that might contain fresh water. Instead, they found themselves just surrounded by small, low, dry little islands. None of them large enough to contain any fresh water whatsoever. Dampier named the archipelago the Dampier Archipelago. But while searching for water, they found all kinds of interesting flora and fauna. But what interested them more than anything were the burned bushes that they found. They appeared to have been burned on purpose by people. And people means water. So the crew scanned the horizon for any sign of human habitation. And it took a while, but eventually one of the men spotted a tiny wisp of smoke in the far distance on another island. The Roebucks set out to find these people, who hopefully knew of a source of fresh water, but they could never quite make it to that island. Which is a real shame. That island was also named by William Dampier. He called it Rosemary Island, which, I mean, come on, man, at least name it Judith Island or something, but... It's a fascinating place, had Dampier managed to actually get there. I've got one source that says Rosemary Island is actually the oldest site of human habitation anywhere in Australia. That source also makes it clear, though, that other European visitors to Rosemary Island were greeted... harshly. Often, just all of them were killed. So maybe Dampier was lucky when, in attempting to approach Rosemary Island, he was always stopped by a coral reef or contrary winds or some other problem that kept them from getting there. Otherwise, he may never have returned home. Step into the world of power, loyalty,
0: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Frustrated, Dampier ordered the ship to head east, where they would reach the mainland. When the crew finally put ashore, carrying pickaxes and shovels to dig wells, they spotted three men watching them. Dampier called them, quote, three tall, black, naked men and when those three realized they'd been spotted, they ran. Dampier had two of his men take the boat out, just far enough that it couldn't be captured by anyone from the shore, while the rest of his company set out in chase of those three. Their main concern in finding these three men was to secure a source of water. However, when the English topped a hill and began to march down, a larger group of Aborigines appeared at the top of the next hill, and began, quote, menacing and threatening them. Dampier and his men, though, were well-armed. They had muskets and sabers, all of them, so they continued on. Rather than attack, though, the Aborigines disappeared behind the hill. There had been about six men in that group of Aborigines, and Dampier decided that those odds weren't too bad, so he made a call. Most of his men were to continue the search for water, They weren't looking for rivers or streams, no, they had pickaxes and shovels that they would use to dig wells and hopefully find some drinkable groundwater. Meanwhile, though, Dampier and two of his men would continue the chase after the Aborigines. One of these was a, nimble young man, whom Dampier had grown quite fond of during the voyage. His name was Alexander Beale. The trio set out, and they made kind of an enticing target. You know, they were good bait. They wanted those aborigines to hunt them, and soon enough, that's exactly what was happening. They were being followed surreptitiously by half a dozen men. When Dampier and his men topped a sand dune and started down the other side, they hid behind an outcropping of rock. And when their followers topped that same dune, found their quarry missing, they started hunting them, looking for footprints or any sign of where they may have gone. Now Dampier intended to wait for the Aborigines to come close. Then he would fire a musket, scaring them, and hopefully jump out and capture one of them. And I suspect he was thinking, like, once they realize we just want water and not to, you know, hurt them, they'll be friendly, which wouldn't have been likely, but maybe it would have worked. However, they never got the chance to try. Alexander Beale jumped the gun here. He burst out of cover and rushed at the men who were hunting them, which proved to be amazingly stupid. The closest of the aboriginal men thrust a spear at Beale and stabbed him through the chin. Beale was stopped in his tracks but began to thrash about with his cutlass. He hit the man who had stabbed him, quote, cleaving off part of the spearman's head. But, you know, he still had a spear sticking out of his chin, so it wasn't like he could fight off the other five men on his own. Dampier, quote, fearing how it might be with my young man, rushed to Beale's defense. He fired into the air, hoping to scare the men away, but, well, it seems like it almost worked, you know, they kind of paused and looked startled, but... They realized nobody had been hurt, so they rushed William Dampier and the other crewmen with him. Dampier was in the process of reloading, but the other man fired off his musket, struck one of the Aborigines, and then Dampier, his musket loaded, fired off a second. The other three men stopped. They did not advance any further. They decided to retreat with their wounded, and William Dampier decided to do the same with Alexander Beale. When Dampier and his men returned to the crew, they had dug a pretty deep well about nine or ten feet, but all they had found was some undrinkable brackish water. Dampier decided that it would be a good time to leave Terra Australis, at least for a little while not only was water becoming more of an issue with every passing day they'd done a pretty good job upsetting the locals so maybe a good time to depart he elected to sail to the nearby dutch settlement at timor now this was going to be a an incredibly dangerous move on dampier's part see the british didn't have any colonies nearby their closest colonial holdings were in india which is you know pretty far away English ships would dock in ports in Indonesia that belonged to the Dutch, but those were usually further to the north and west. It would have been a rare occurrence, and a bit suspicious for an English ship to dock at Timor. More than likely, the Dutch would assume that any ship flying the King's Jack was a pirate. When... HMS Roebuck arrived at Timor, they found about a hundred soldiers standing guard on the shoreline, but they weren't Dutch soldiers. Dampier calls them Indians, which is almost right, a little better than calling Native Americans Indians, but we would understand them today as Indonesians. However, they were almost certainly sent by the Dutch to deter the English from making a landfall. Dampier kept the Roebuck fairly far out, but he did send a single ship's boat with a single messenger, the clerk, James Brand. Brand was given a meeting with the Dutch governor there at Timor and explained their situation, who they were, what they were about, and what they needed. He had to beg a little bit and even offered some very light, only suggestive, threats You know, all very, if we don't get any water, the men are going to be in a very desperate situation, and who knows what they might do. Considering the English propensity for turning to piracy, certainly nothing good. So the governor there relented, and allowed the Roebuck to dock. The men collected as much water as their ship could handle, and Dampier realized that he had a situation brewing with the boatswain a man named John Norwood. Norwood was riling up the crew, trying to convince them that Dampier intended to sell them to the Dutch governor. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Similar to what the men on board the Spanish expedition believed, that they were going to be sold to the King of Spain. And I suspect that Norwood was trying to convince the men to overthrow the captain and turn pirate. You know, oh, goodness me, he's going to sell us to the governor. Better have a mutiny. And once you have a mutiny, oh, no, we'll be in trouble. Guess we better turn pirate. But Dampier, of course, had plenty of experience with both mutinies and pirates. He spotted this thing coming far off. He didn't beat the bosun, but he did have Norwood confined to his quarters for the duration of the voyage from here on out. And you know, despite his imperfections, and he has plenty, Dampier really was the right choice for a voyage of this sort. You know, a ship of the Royal Navy, captained by a regular Navy captain, would not have done as well as Dampier did. You know, he had all that experience sailing with the pirates, and he knew how to do it. Sailing was different when you were on board a pirate ship, or when you were far from any friendly ports. See, the men of the Roebuck had to collect wood, which was, you know, common practice for every ship on the sea. They all needed a regular infusion of fresh wood to make repairs on the ship, but Royal Navy ships typically just bought it, or had it delivered to them at a Royal Navy dockyard. Pirates, though, had no such luxury. They had to know what wood to cut and how to process it, ...to make it usable to repair their ship, and Dampier had to teach his men how to do that. The ship was running low on tar as well, another commodity that would have been provided by the Navy. However, here, far from any English port, they would have to procure their own. Now, you can't really make tar on the fly, but Dampier taught the men uh, a workaround that was common knowledge among pirates... He had them gather up sea shells and then grind them down into a fine lime dust, then mix it with water to create a paste that could be used in place of pitch. These are the kind of skills that the Royal Navy did not have, but skills that every pirate knew well and skills that were necessary to keep Roebuck sailing. The Roebuck departed Timor in December and spent three months trying to get back to Australia. The currents and the winds were not in their favor at that time of year. Instead of landing at Australia, they were forced to turn back and make landfall at New Guinea. They spent some weeks resting and repairing the ship, but by March, Dampier had a decision to make. He really wanted to get back to Australia and fulfill his mission to explore and document as much as possible. But every time he tried to reach mainland Australia, he was disappointed. So he took a survey of his officers. He asked them if they should carry on in their mission or if they should return home. Now, the officers voted to continue on unanimously, which is what Dampier wanted to do. But it's quite possible they only voted to continue on because they knew the captain wanted them. To do so. Either way, Dampier did the opposite. He decided to return to England. The men were growing more and more restless, and Dampier could feel the mood growing darker with each passing day. They wanted to go home, and the ship herself wasn't really doing too great. They could patch her up and apply as much sealant as possible, but the worms had eaten a great deal of the hull away. So on 11 March 1700, HMS Roebuck set a heading west, across the Indian Ocean. The voyage was mostly uneventful, or at least Dampier doesn't talk too much about what was going on on board. He seems mostly to have been concerned with the state of the ship, which wasn't great. Rounding the Cape of Good Hope was particularly dangerous, and the ship sustained even more damage. The Roebuck limped on, but she was kind of slow and doddering. When they reached Ascension Island in the southern Atlantic Ocean, Dampier admitted defeat. HMS Roebuck was not going to make it home. She probably wouldn't even make it to the next landfall. When Roebuck put down anchor at Ascension Island, she was never going to move again. This was not an ideal situation for the men, but it was not as dire as it might seem. I mean, sure, yeah, they were stranded on a deserted island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but Ascension Island was a pretty common stop for English and Dutch ships. It had fresh water and sources of food, so the men weren't going to go hungry or thirsty. In fact, they might enjoy their stay there at least a little bit, assuming that they realized that someone was coming eventually. And it took a while, about three months before another ship arrived, but when it did, they found the men of the Roebuck were healthy and in mostly good spirits. The ship that arrived there at Ascension Island agreed to ferry the crew back home, and soon enough, Dampier was on his way to London. He arrived on 20 September 1701, so well over a year after deciding to return home. When I said that the ship was slow and doddering, I really meant it. This voyage took a while. Dampier's first order of business upon returning to London was to report the loss of His Majesty's Ship Roebuck and to report to his superiors. Those superiors were upset at Dampier for a lot of good reasons, but for some reasons that may or may not have the validity they were given at the time. It seemed, for a minute, like Dampier might be arrested before he was even given the opportunity to leave the Admiralty, but he wasn't. Instead, he was informed that they would hold a court-martial there at the Admiralty, to review his conduct on the voyage. Mainly, they were concerned with all of the accusations made by Lieutenant Fisher. Many of Fisher's accusations were incredible, you know, not to be believed in the slightest, but others did have some merit. He wasn't, though, treated unfairly by the Admiralty Board, he was given a full accounting of the accusations made against him. The two biggest were those accusations made by Fisher, and another issue involving the bosun, John Norwood. See, before he returned to England, John Norwood died, and it appears that his wife accused the captain, William Dampier, who had kept him confined to his cabin, of causing the boatswain's death. This kind of accusation was not at all uncommon for men who commanded ships in the Royal Navy. However, they almost never ended with the officer in question paying for their crime, if indeed one had been committed. The accusations made by Fisher, though, were given a lot more weight. They come from a good Royal Navy man rather than some sailor's wife. Dampier was given plenty of time to build a defense against the accusations made by Lieutenant Fisher, but he also spent some time building an offense against Fisher. He had plenty of his own accusations to make. You know, there was the insubordination, the attempted mutiny, but Dampier also accused Lieutenant Fisher of buggery and sodomy. And according to Dampier, Fisher had done these acts with some of the cabin boys on board. He told the Admiralty Board that it was common knowledge among everyone on the ship that if one of the boys was seen sneaking away with Fisher into a secluded part of the ship, or as Dampier said he saw in one of the ship's boats, they needed to, you know, put a stop to it immediately. I'm not going to spend much time on Dampier's court martial. It was a confused mess from the very beginning to the very ending. Dampier tried to track down some of the men of the crew to offer testimony in his defense, but he wasn't able to find very many. Alexander Beale had apparently disappeared off the face of the earth, and most of the rest of the crew had departed on other voyages by that point. They were only able to get about seven or eight men that could actually testify, and not all of them testified in Dampier's defense. In fact, Almost exactly half of them did. The other half said that, you know, Fisher was right, he's absolutely undisputed. Everything he said was 100% true. All of these testimonies contradicted one another. The court was unable to really determine any hard facts about what had happened. In the end, Dampier was acquitted in the death of John Norwood. He was found not guilty. He was also acquitted in the dispute between himself and Lieutenant Fisher. That is to say, the Admiralty recognized that he had never intended to turn pirate and that he was right to demand a certain level of respect from his lieutenant. However, Captain William Dampier, in demanding said respect, beat his lieutenant with a cane. You know, this isn't some deckhand or gunner this is the second in command a man who had formerly been acting captain of the roebuck a well-respected navy officer that is inappropriate that is conduct unbecoming an officer dampier was found guilty now his punishment wasn't too terrible i mean and let's be fair here Dampier did it, so you can't really blame him for finding him guilty. Even if you might feel, in your heart of hearts, that Fisher maybe kind of had it coming, you know, that was still against the rules. But his punishment wasn't too terrible. His pay was cut in half, which, it's not great, but not too terrible. More of a problem, though, William Dampier was declared, quote, Not a fit man to command one of his majesty's ships. William Dampier was fired from the Navy. The salary that had been getting paid to his wife on a monthly basis as the wife of a captain in the Royal Navy, well, that stopped. That's another financial hit. He was also disgraced in the eyes of all of those important Navy men that he had sought the approval of. But William Dampier had a wealth of very interesting notes and drawings and samples from his voyage. He may have become a pariah in military circles, but the voyage to New Holland made him, even more than he had been previously, a, a darling of English academics. He compiled his new book, which eventually would go on to be almost as successful as his first. Dampier was going to be all right. But then, just a few weeks after his court-martial, after being fired from the Navy, England declared war on France. Now, Dampier was no longer affiliated with the Navy or the government, so it's not like he was going to get called up to action... But he was a skilled navigator. He knew the ways of privateers and how to survive at sea. And all of this means that he would be an excellent candidate to serve on board privateer ships. Potentially a much more lucrative endeavor. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Ben Franklin's World, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, well, unfortunately, the website that I've been telling you to visit for a few years now is no longer up. However, there are still plenty of good options to check out their music. YouTube, Bandcamp, Spotify, wherever fine songs are found. And I urge you to do so, because it's great stuff. Whenever you're done, you can go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.